from the Word of God, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May your grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We commonly call this day Easter Sunday. In ways it's unfortunate, but sometimes things get such attraction that it's just hard to break out of them. And there's all kinds of misunderstandings of where even the word Easter came from and that whole thing with the bunnies and the eggs and everything else, all of which serves to, if you let it, become a distraction. We have tried to, I don't even want to say embrace all that junk, but our presence at the park yesterday had scheduled periodic proclamations of the good news message of Jesus Christ and why you need him for your salvation. And to honestly, to my utter dismay, yes, me of little faith, the area we had set up for that, and there was just, again, perhaps thousands of people there, I don't know. It looked that way. It was just a sea of people. And yet in the area where the message of Jesus was being proclaimed, which was the whole point of attracting the people there, every time that message was being proclaimed, that bleacher that was there was either nearly full or full with people standing around. And I just went, wow, who would have thunk it? So for all of the misconceptions about Easter, make this certain. We have fun. We get caught up in some of the trappings, if you want to look at it that way, but we are focused on the person and the beauty and the glory of the risen Savior, Jesus. But sometimes in brevity, there is profundity. And so I'm going to have you listen to a 30-second excerpt of one of the great theologians of our day, Mr. Jim Gaffigan, on Easter. Easter, that's a weird tradition. Easter, the day Jesus rose from the dead, what should we do? How about eggs? Oh, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? All right, we'll hide them. We don't follow your logic. Don't worry, there's a bunny. Thirty seconds. His conclusion, ridiculous. 
You ought to hear his take on Christmas. Oh, yeah. Well, the truth is that today, words like salvation and resurrection, words like sin and judgment, of heaven and hell, of mercy and of grace, all these words are known at some level to people who perhaps frequented churches or have church somewhere in the background or grew up in a religious environment. But through the years and with the decline in culture, Our Christian values have also degraded, it seems, with culture. And some of these words have all but fallen out of use, even within the body of Christ. And the ones that yet survive tend to be only superficially understood, if at all. Words like resurrection has grown so vague that we might use it in referring to an athlete who has come into some kind of a slump in his career, and yet through a new new training regimen and, and uh, rededication to practice and all of that, suddenly we talk about this athlete's resurrecting his career. A deeply religious term like salvation. Today it's so overworked and so broad that it may refer to an author's latest bestseller that will turn out to be the salvation of his publisher. My goal this morning is to try and first be real, to try and be relevant, but above all things, to be truthful to the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God and His declaration to mankind. He has explained to us in His Word all those things concerning the most important aspect of everyone's life. Namely, what comes next after this life? What comes next after this life? Now understand, I'm going to give you the three broad groups that I just kind of threw together that I think summarize all the iterations that would fall basically under one of those three ideas of how people today view what is after this life. The first one is what happens to us after this life? Nothing. We just cease to exist. We go out of existence, ashes, ashes, dust to dust, nothing more, nothing hereafter. There is no afterlife of any kind, any way, shape, or form. When I think of all of that, I always think of Carl Sagan, the late cosmologist, who died as an avowed atheist. His wife, Ann Durian, was approached after Sagan, who was so well-known and renowned as an atheist. People would ask her, so did your husband, as sometimes happens, comes face to face with death, did Carl turn and, and come to some kind of a faith in God? And she said categorically, oh, no. No. No, no. You see, we understand. We know that there is Nothing after this. This is all that there is. And you see, and here's how Satan works in the craftiness of words that evoke emotions. Listen to this. It sounds, oh, because we know that there is nothing after this life. It caused Carl and I in our 20 years together in marriage to seize the moment, to embrace every moment, and to savor it all. So that now, because we know that we will never see each other again, we just put everything into that and invested in it and got every drop out of it that we could. Words to those effect. Isn't that sad? What happens after life? Nothing. The second one. Everybody... Everybody, ever born, everybody come and gone. Everybody goes to some idea of heaven. It's called universalism in the broad sweep. 
And it is probably the most common view, certainly in our nation it is, the most common view today of what happens after we die. Everybody goes to heaven, of course. Oh, maybe not. There's always that. Well, maybe not Adolf Hitler. It's amazing how often he comes up in that context. But basically, everybody, when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Third category. Some go to some idea of a heaven, while others go to some idea of a hell. So I want you just to kind of park that for a moment. As we've become more advanced in our knowledge, and our knowledge has exuded, as we know, all kinds of of new and honestly wondrous technologies. But in the course of that, we have moved further and further away from a spiritual worldview of understanding that the world really is spirit, that there is a spirit realm beyond this, there is life beyond this, to a much more rigorous uh, rational worldview or scientific worldview. And a major part of this change in this worldview is that the common form of evaluation of truth for one's self today comes from within the individual. Where the world used to overwhelmingly judge the nature of all things by some kind of a source, an objective source outside themselves, for the vast majority of centuries, the key one, the main one, was the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. But whatever it was, everybody resorted to basically something outside themselves. But that too was gradually abandoned for the ever-changing source of truth now being defined and derived by one's personal senses, one's personal feelings, one's own logic, one's own reason, and one's own knowledge of the universe. Which is exactly why there is also an ever-increasing atheism today. Ah. Theism without God, the disbelief in the existence of God in the world today. There's simply, with all of our amazement and wonderment and technology, there simply is no need for a God. Now stay with me, this does get heady. Remember, Mr. Theology is your friend. Think along these lines. The typical individual looks around themselves. You don't have to look very hard at all, especially, again, with our technology. Everything is right up close and personal. It's on video. It's there. Things that, that, that happen in parts of the world that we've never even heard of before, now they happen almost instantly and in front of our eyes, if we so desire. And so people look around and they evaluate all that is wrong with the world. And they make what to them are perfectly logical judgments which explain their observations. One of those common judgments is that anything and everything that goes wrong in the world, if there is a God, is laid at the feet of someone's concept of God. How many times have you heard, oh, I can't believe in a God that would allow that. I can't believe in a God that would do this and that. It's amazing the stuff that God gets blamed for. But here's how such a prevailing view developed. It's called Aristotelian logic. We were taught that when we had, you know, slates and and stones to write on in the classroom. 
In math class, it was called Aristotelian logic or reasoning by syllogism. I knew you wanted to know that. No extra charge. Here's how it goes. If there was a God and he is good, there would be no wrong in the world. But there is wrong in the world, and therefore, there is no God. Now, of course, the Christian view steps in. The Christian view says, no, 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 wait, no. God is good. He is, and He is there, and He is good. But they say, no, no, if God is good, again, He would not allow anything bad in the world. But there is bad in the world, therefore, there is no God. The same syllogism reworded. And to many people, again, this seems perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical. But the argument is terribly, lethally flawed due to the assumptions in the argument. So, well, what assumptions? You see, if God is good, he would not permit evil in the world. That's an assumption. Well, who says? Who says that if God is good, there would not be evil in the world? He would not permit it. I say, and well, you say, well, who says? And they say, well, I say. I go, well, that's very interesting. Well, no, see, say, they say, and here's again, where is truth derived? It's derived from within now. Well, if I were God, okay, stop. Exactly. <laughs> if I were God, and this was happening over there in the Middle East, I would step in and it would not happen. If I were God, there wouldn't be these avalanches that kill all these people. There wouldn't be earthquakes. There wouldn't be famine and there wouldn't be feasts. Everybody would be fed. Nobody would be hungry. If I were God, and we paint the picture, and what is amazing and ironic in that is that the picture that people begin to talk about and describe is very, very much in tune with the heaven of the Bible. And you know what? That shouldn't even be surprising to us. Because we are told in the Bible, in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Everyone that has come into the world already has a sense that this isn't all there is. There is something else. Now, it can be repressed and be suppressed and everything else that Paul goes into in Romans chapter 1 in particular All that takes place. But God has set this notion that this isn't it. There is actually a beyond. Back to what I said a few moments ago. We Christians also, unfortunately, tend to evaluate the world around us through our senses and through our logic and our knowledge of the universe. And that pesky reality called wickedness and tragedy and justice are constantly making their presence known. And so we have this conflict going on within us. Well, enter, according to the theological phrasing of it, enter the problem of evil, as it is called. Again, why Do bad things happen to good people? The problem of evil. The converse is also true. Why do good things happen to bad people? It's not new. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Go look at it when you get home if you're curious. He's bellyaching and moaning about exactly this precise issue. 
What does the Bible say to mankind about this problem of evil and its solution, both now and ultimately later on? Well, to understand this, remember Mr. Theology is our friend, we've got to go all the way back to the very beginning of this book. The book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we open up, God makes man, and God makes Adam and Eve, that's man collectively, the entire human race, they're residing in Adam and Eve, and God creates them, and he puts them in a place that the text tells us was specially prepared for them, called the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, now you understand, come into the world created, not coming down a line of lineage from anybody, but they are created by God and they come into this world unsullied. That means with pristine cleanliness in every way, shape, and form. No taint, no flaw, zippo, nada. In reality, there is heaven on earth. Two perfect people existing in this specially prepared place by God where there is no influence because it doesn't exist yet. There's no sin in the world And so everything works as it's supposed to. And Adam and Eve have this friendship, this fellowship, this communion with God going on, and they don't even know it's unique. God says, good morning. They say, hey, good morning, Lord. And they talk, and he's that close and personal. And because God loves them, and because God created them with a free will, which we're going to talk about in a minute, God wants them to keep experiencing This heaven on earth with all the attendant blessings and his favor in their lives. But now God, you see, in his perfect wisdom, created them with the freedom to listen to what God says is right or to ignore him and do what they feel is right. But God knows everything, which means he knew how this was all going to go down, and yet Knowing that, he still gave them this prerogative of freedom to choose. Why? Why didn't he do it differently? I mean, think, I mean, God, he's certainly creative. He's a creator. He could have done something, something creative, something short of, of, let's say, physical incapacitation to curb one's bad choices or to curb one's freedom of will that, that lead them to make bad choices. Well, okay, like what? What might you suggest? Well, okay, um, how about a contract? Another name for contract is a covenant. How about a contract with spelling out, if you do this, here's what I'll do. 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 And if you do this, here's what I'll do. If you don't do this, and I've said to do it, here's what I'll do. But if you do this, and you do this, you do this, and I'll do this, this, and this. There it is. I mean, it's there. It's laid out before you. Maybe that. Maybe, yeah, that's a great idea. That that would have to be better than what we have right now. Hmm. Well, if you've ever read your Old Testament, you see that that is exactly what God had arranged with his people. God made a covenant. He made a contract. And God summarized that contract through Moses, putting them into ten laws or commandments. 
Not suggestions, by the way, but commandments. And he promised contractually that he would bless them if they just obeyed the contract. God would treat his people with absolute defined fairness by his system of reward, and if they didn't, his system of punishment. That system collectively is called the law of God. Well, how well did that work in bringing a peaceful coexistence to this burgeoning planet? You can read the first two books of the history, which begins after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are Joshua and Judges. And in there we see that after only just a few years, Israel, God's favored people who had the covenant, they had the contract, had declined into a state of utter anarchy. That's how well that worked. But you see, it didn't work because they were incapable of holding up their side of the contractual agreement with God. And so what they needed was to throw out that contract or covenant, and we need a new covenant. One that's not based on personal performance, but on forgiveness and on grace and on divine love. You see, it is because God loves and wants us to love Him back that we have freedom to choose. Because forcing someone to love you through power and might is not love at all. So putting a holy shock collar, so to speak, on us, and giving us a little, like we do our schnauzer, (laughs) very rarely, doesn't take long. Oh, they learn. There's a little beep that precedes it. It Beep. I wasn't intending to go there. (laughs) I know you weren't. I was just making sure. And if God were to do that with us, zapping us, when we even start thinking about going astray, might be appealing to some. But that does nothing to engender love between the one created and the one who created us. And God is a God of love. So we're back to mankind. There's Adam and Eve, and they choose to do what they feel is right. Oh, but but it looks so good and it's delicious and I bet it tastes good. I oh, I know what God said, you know, but I, it can't be it can't be bad if it looks so and feels so right. And so they do what they determine to be true. And this thing called sin enters the world. Now sin isn't a thing. It's it's I don't it's it's hard to to use the right phrase with that. It's not like it's an animate object. And I say this because a very common question I've been asked over the years is, well, either who made sin or why did God make sin? God didn't make sin. It's not anything that's made. Nobody made it. Sin is description of a state. It's a state of one's mind and one's will where they are in rebellion to the truth giver. That's what sin is. And so sin was unknown before this time, but once they did what they felt was right, now sin becomes part and parcel of not only the whole human race, but of the whole universe is impacted by it. All of a sudden, those cute little that used to never come to your ear at night when you were sleeping, not in Eden, before the fall, they didn't sit on you and go, ow! Everything worked the way it was supposed to, the way it would in heaven. 
Sin entered the world, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, ow, that hurt. See, sin gets you every time. I'm telling you. What is very important to remember from this point now in this message going forward is that Adam and Eve were the only two, I know I've said this, but it's important, were the only two living humans at the outset. And so when they sinned against God, that sinful tendency was passed down through them to everyone now that proceeds to come forth from them. You see, Adam and Eve literally were, are, the parents of the rest of the world. So all children proceeding from Adam and Eve come into the world already having inherited this sinful tendency. Depending on the tradition you may have been raised in, it's sometimes called original sin. Whereas Adam and Eve, listen to this carefully, whereas Adam and Eve had to first disobey in order to become sinners. Remember, they came into the world pristine. All who proceed from them now come into the world already declared to be sinful, even before they have done anything wrong. Now you might be going, well, that stinks. I know. Stay with me. This is, again, vitally important that you understand this. You will see that this turns out actually to be a good thing. You see, you and I inherited the permanent stain of sin with all its attendant consequences. This isn't a new phenomenon. King David understood that a thousand years before Jesus was even on the scene. In Psalm 51, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He writes again in Psalm 14, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. This is all coming from the Lord. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Everyone in the human race has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Not one. Did I say not one? Not one. Later on, many years later, centuries later, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, through one man, Adam, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men. You see, we all enter the world already ruined. We enter the world already hopeless of any chance of heaven. Because God demands absolute sin-free perfection. But we come into the world already tainted. So nobody has any hope of heaven. The world is condemned. But about that new contract that God designed... God has consigned, again the Apostle keeps writing, God has consigned everyone, all, to disobedience. Wait, what? Why would a good, loving God do such a thing? The passage continues. So that he may show mercy to all, to everyone. You see, if God let each one of us take our best shot for heaven, let's just play with this a minute, okay? Okay. Total conjecture, because it isn't the way it is. 
But let's say, instead of inheriting original sin from Adam and Eve, God brought everyone into this world just like Adam and Eve, meaning sin-free, meaning they wouldn't become a sinner until they actually disobeyed God. Well, let's go back to Adam and Eve when they were sin-free. How long did it take them to say, oh, I don't know, I know God said this, but I sure like the look of that. I'm going to eat it. The Scriptures don't give us really a time-bearing But it doesn't seem like it's long at all. Maybe hours. Because after all, they were now fully human and they were hungry and they're going to go eat. Maybe it was days, but a very short period of time. So the fact is that if God gave everyone their best shot, we wouldn't have made it in anyway. So nobody would ever have any hope of heaven. He did it consigning everyone to being failures so that he may show mercy to all. And so God in his benevolence removed the admissions test, if you will, from our hands and took it into his own. And that passage in Romans 11 where it's from finishes with, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Well, thus far, despite this little little inkling here of of what sounds like good news. There doesn't seem to be a lot of good news, at least not that's obvious, so let's continue. The reason that there is such a growing lack of faith around the world in the God of the Scriptures is because there's really no compelling reason to be afraid or to question, or to wonder, going back to those three categories at the beginning about people's view of what happens after this life. And this is exactly why so many pastors and so many authors today, supposedly Christian authors and pastors, soft-pedal or completely skip over the Old Testament, which is two-thirds of the entire Bible. Well, boy, people aren't going to like this kind of a message. And we're all about growing and being cool and hip. So we'll just skip the bad stuff and we will jump right ahead to the good news. And I believe that this is exactly why the state of the Christian church, especially in countries where they are prosperous, like North America, are in such a dismal state of repair and so utterly wayward from any semblance of biblical truth. If you skip the truth and the totality of what God offers to us to save us from, if we understand what we are can be saved from, and why we all desperately need a Savior, the gift of salvation isn't very enticing. If you have no idea what you're being saved from, it's like, ah, I don't know. Our problem today, theologically, is there is hardly any bad news, so to speak, preached anymore. So the good news just isn't all that good. There's just no reality to the prospects of anything less than heaven. Let me try and illustrate this to make this more clear. I'm going to describe to you two different scenarios, similar but different, 
that you may have had personal experience with. If you haven't, you certainly have heard either from someone or read about it. And so you'll know. These, I, I trust these will, these will convey what I'm trying to say here. How many of you have ever had a flight delayed either by weather or better by mechanical issues? Delayed or canceled outright, right? Okay. And if you haven't, if you have never flown, then uh, you know that that's out there, obviously. Okay. We're keenly aware of that. Well, if there is any gratefulness at all on the part of the passengers when an airline goes through its procedures and it, it, it tries to, you know, in, you know, you know the spiel, right? In the un, in, what is it? In the unlikely event of a water landing, <laughs> it's like, I hope it's unlikely, you know. There is a flotation device under your seat. And you know, notice where the exits are and everything else. And what does the anyone who's flown for more than one time, what do they do? I'm in the magazine. I'm doing the crossword puzzle. Whatever. And so this is just kind of something that's just, okay, we're going to be even more late departing from the gate because you're going through all this nonsense. And then your flight gets canceled because of some kind of mechanical issue. And you're like, oh, for the love for all the millions and millions of dollars the airlines have, you know, you can't get anything right. True story. So there I am in the airplane. I used to have horrible times flying. Okay. Just terrible luck with getting out of the gate on time. But my touch point, my hope, my ah, moment was as soon as I go through those doors and I'm on the plane. Because there is like, you're good now, baby. All right. Well, there I am. I'm on the plane. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever. And then the pilot gets on. Oh, yeah, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it seems that one of our batteries here in the cabin have died, and uh, we're not allowed to take off without that battery being replaced. Now, it's not a big job. The good news is it takes about 10 minutes to replace that battery. And I'm sitting there going, wait, wait, come on. It's a battery, right? Come on. I mean, this is a highly technical aircraft. What is this battery control? The, the emergency lights or something? We can go. Come on. I got a connection to make. The danger's not real. Give me a break. The good news is it takes 10 minutes to repair. The bad news is we don't have a battery. Seriously. No, it gets better. The bad news is no one of our planes in this terminal, in this airport, has a battery. No one in this airport. We've contacted the other airlines. They don't have the battery we need. But again, the good news is we're having one float in. But once we get it, it'll only take 10 minutes to fix. Woo, okay, yeah, that makes everything cool. <laughs> okay, right? If there's any gratefulness at all on my part, right? And, and believe me, there isn't. But if there is any, it's a, what I'm going to call a theoretical greatness. Why? Because the danger isn't real. The danger is only theoretical. And so we're sitting in front of a very positive preacher who never talks about anything from the Old Testament, never talks about what it is we're saved from. Only that we're saved. Jesus loves us. And God loves you. And He can't do enough for you. Scenario number two now. LaGuardia Airport, New York. Beautiful morning. Pristine sky, blue, a few clouds in the skies, 19 degrees outside. 
planes on the runway, making a very routine, standard little jaunt down to Charlotte, two-hour trip, no big deal. Flight 1549, the passengers board. They get into the plane, the plane taxis, it's out there. They're taking off. I'm sure few, unless, again, it's the first time they've flown, right? Then they're like, and they're looking at everything, and every noise is unnerving and all. But So they go up, plane takes off, three minutes into the flight, three minutes There's all these bangs like like described as the worst thunderstorm I've ever heard in my life. And then the smell of jet fuel. Oh, that can't be good. And then the smell of something like turkey cooking. Honestly. I'm talking about U.S. Airways Flight 1549. Three minutes into the flight, flying through a flock of geese. And Captain Chesley Sullenberger radios, Mayday, Mayday. We're losing both engines. And you hear this totally calm conversation. Uh, Roger, uh, you're clear to come back to LaGuardia. Uh, Roger that. Uh, Seconds later, yeah, we're not going to make LaGuardia. I think I'm going to have to put her down in the Hudson. Can you imagine... You are on that aircraft. Remember that stupid little monotonous, and in the unlikely event of a water landing, you'll find under your seat cushion, all of a sudden you'd be like, I want to make sure know where this is. Okay, let's see, the safety exits, yeah, there's one there, one, two, three, four, okay, it's four seats away, you know, all of a sudden, wow, why? Because the danger all of a sudden is real. And Captain Sullenberger lands that aircraft with no fatalities and only five fairly serious injuries, but nothing lasting. Who has the greater appreciation? Who has the gratefulness and the thankfulness to the crew for their knowledge, for their professionalism, for their warning you of the danger and being prepared and knowing what to do in the danger Who has the greater appreciation and thankfulness? Me? It's a battery for peace sake! (laughs) Or those people today. And again, we come to the good news of Christ without any kind of a foundation of why it was necessary and what we really have been saved from. And we go... (sighs) Oh, yeah, I I said that prayer. I'm good. So now up the stakes when it comes to the most important aspect of any of our existence, our eternal destiny, whether heaven or hell, eternity with God, or eternally separated from Him. Truth be told, it's only a theoretical danger if it's even understood as a real danger again at all. But we who understands the Apostle's words that for since by one man Adam came death, the human race was doomed. For as in Adam all die because of the inherited sin. But the passage continues, by one man Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. So also in Christ all will be made alive. So God came and did Himself for us 
all that he demanded in that life of sin-free perfection because he knew we never could. And the resurrection is the unarguable proof that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. Because if he wasn't, if he was just another man who had descended from Adam and Eve, he too would have already been condemned and would have been going to that cross paying the price for his own sins. But the empty grave is irrefutable proof that Jesus was the perfect, sin-free substitute Savior. For God states the wages of sin is death, but death could not hold Jesus in the grave because he had no sin. Again, which is what empowers death, which is both physical and spiritual. So what Jesus did was he lived for you and me. He was punished for you and me. And he rose again showing that death had, in fact, been defeated. We were all condemned to a Christless eternity. But God said, I got this. And yet, we still have freedom to accept or reject what God has gifted to us. And all we need to do is believe it and receive it. But as many as received Him, John writes, to them gave He the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Again in John 5, Truly I say to you, He who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The theological underpinnings, yes, they get complicated, they get complex. The end game, the end solution is that we couldn't do what God demanded ever. And because He loves us, He gives us the perfection we need. He's a just God, so He had to punish the sin that sin requires for each of us. And so at the cross, God took that punishment of my sin and your sin on Himself And then he paid the penalty, which is separation from God. You say, well, wait a minute, how can the Trinity be separated? I have no idea. It blows my mind to even try and think about it. But Jesus on that cross, you'll remember, said, My God, why have you forsaken me? And spiritual death is separation from the Father. In some way that I can't even understand, God the Son for that time was separated from the Father. But sin is the power of death, and Jesus had no sin. And so the door gets rolled away, and Jesus stands before mankind, accomplishing for us eternity, and says, here, it's yours. Do you want it or not? And you're free to choose. And so whatever your spiritual pilgrimage this morning is, whatever path you're on, whatever state, however far down that line you are, or whatever game you might be playing with the Lord God, everyone will stand in judgment. Everyone. And I tell you as simply as I can, when you stand before God, and God should say, why should I let you into my heaven? 
If you start pulling out your resume and you start listing off all that, well, you know, I, you know, I did this, I did this, I, I tried not to do this, and you know, I made some progress there. But he's going to say, mm, "Wow, you were a pretty good person in your life." But pretty good doesn't cut it up here. It's only perfection that counts. In fact, the scriptures say that all our goodness, all our good works, all those things we can try and whip up and present to God to say, "Here, love me." God says. Those are all like filthy rags because they're not perfect and he only accepts perfection. And so we go to the prophet Isaiah. Again, hundreds of years before the Messiah even came. And he says, I will rejoice in the Lord for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has clothed me with the cloak of righteousness. And so the person who understands the gift and has received the gift when God says, why should I let you in? Don't start rattling off the resume. It's because I have accepted the gift of my substitute, of my Savior Jesus, and therefore you have to see me as being as perfect and sinless as Jesus himself is. That's what it means to be accounted or credited as righteous, as Paul says at length in the book of Romans. Is this Jesus your Savior today? I mean, really. And then a harder question is Jesus your Lord? That means your king, the one who calls the shots. No man knows what a day may bring forth, the Bible says. Don't put it off and don't play games because God knows the heart. Let me have you stand. If in your spirit this morning you feel that sense of, the Christian lingo calls it conviction, just that sense of, of boy, I, yeah, what, what do I got to, what do I need to do? In your spirit right now, in your mind, remember God made you, He knows you inside and out. You can say, God of heaven, I understand so little of all of this, but I know, I know that you're talking to me and I know that I can't get into heaven without you. So I don't understand all the ins and outs of this gift, but I tell you I want it. I want to receive it. I I want to become your child of God and he will hear you. And he will answer that prayer and do something else that's supernatural. He will then come into you in the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit and will take you on a now a lifelong process, as long as you have breath in this life, of helping you, of training you through all kinds of people and through prayer and all of that to make you conform, to make you more like Jesus every day. Not so that you will be good enough to get into heaven. You can't but in order to get the most out of this life and to be a glory to God, he will continue working on you. And the extent to you say, okay, yes, I can do that. Yes, I will do that. Yes, I can give that up. You come into the fullness of what life really is all about. And now the supreme creator of the universe is your ally, is your supernatural friend. And he's a powerful friend indeed. Father in heaven, let your spirit move in this place.
Give that conviction. Let there be the open heart, O oh God, that says either, yes, I, I have been playing the game with you, Lord. I really, I really repent. I really am sorry. And I know better. Thank you for not giving up on me. I receive your forgiveness and your grace. Others might say, just as I said, God in heaven, I, I, all I know is I do need you. Help me. Give me Jesus' righteousness. I have a thankful heart for him taking my punishment. And I want to be more like him. Father in heaven, let this day be a day truly of new birth, a day of genuine resurrection from the dead, of being one who was formerly consigned to an eternity away from your presence in a very real place called hell to now being a child of God, assured a place in your glorious heaven. For I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, giving you thanks always. Amen and amen.